or I posed to you a question two weeks ago, and that question was, how do we have a Christ-centered Christmas? We hear that phrase over and over again, don't we? A Christ-centered Christmas, or Christ is the reason for the season. And I mentioned to you two weeks ago, and, and, I, and I want to say this again, that if we live, and this is the key, if we live a Christ-centered every day, then the chances are we are going to be living a Christ-centered Christmas. The way to have a Christ-centered perspective during special times of the year is to have a Christ-centered perspective throughout the year. But isn't this easier said than done? Why? Because we live in a broken world as broken people. I was thinking as we were singing, the the amount of people that we have in this room. And every single one of us has brought in certain circumstances, situations, perspectives, all if we went around the, uh, around the room for hours, we could be talking about what we are going through. In fact, many times, we don't even give it a thought about bringing Christ into our situations, into our stories. We'll talk to our spouse about different things we're thinking or different things we're going through. We'll talk to... Uh, other employees will talk to different people and we just take the the circumstances the stories of our lives and we just take them as a matter of fact and well we just got to go through it and we forget to bring Christ into those situations I've often thought being stuck in traffic in fact a couple weeks ago or yeah a couple weeks ago I guess in November Uh, When I went to um, a pastor's conference in Atlanta, um, I hate Atlanta traffic. Oh, it's bumper to bumper, six lanes of traffic, all going the same way. But, you know, sometimes I think when I'm in traffic, when, when I'm not frustrated, all of these cars, and there is a life story in each one of these vehicles. Many times, several life stories. If you have a, like our family, a van packed full of people. And yet God knows each one of those stories that are symbolized by this massive sea of red brake lights that I see in front of me. Can you believe that? Two weeks ago, I gave you three different stories Three different examples of living life in a broken world as broken people and what that may look like for different individuals. Uh, you remember two weeks ago I talked about uh, uh, Sally. And these are made-up stories, made-up people. But I talked about Sally, her husband of 60-plus years, passed away quickly and posed the question, in, in Sally's life, will this Christmas make or break her? 
How will she handle this time of year where traditions loom large and and memories of Christmas's past are ever-present? Is there hope for Sally in her time of need? Talked about Bill, who was a highly successful businessman, yet he's at the brink of financial, personal, and family catastrophe due to his misplaced priorities and values. I pose the question, with so many tensions and, and, and difficulties in Bill's life, is there hope for him? Brought up a lady by the name of Gail who has a continual battle with depression and she's never quite experienced victory and, and once again her world is seeming to darken. Her husband and children feel weighed down knowing they're helpless in these struggles. Can Gail experience hope and peace? Just want to present to you two new stories. Philip, he's a 40 year old man who's happily married and has two young children. He's a faithful and consistent presence in the lives of his wife, children, friends, and church. This is much different than Bill, if you remember two weeks ago Bill's story. He loves the Lord and he seeks to minister to others in Jesus' name. He has overcome a lot of obstacles in his life, one of which involves a difficult childhood where he never quite felt the approval of his parents, namely his father. Though he often went above and beyond to try to please them, especially his father, his best never quite seemed enough. Sure, his parents said they loved him, but their actions never quite fully expressed it. When they thought he did well, he felt supported, but whenever expectations were not met, that support was noticeably missing in his life. Now, while on the outside, Philip seems put together and is even a spiritual leader to those around him, inwardly, he still senses an aching in his heart. In fact, the absence of the felt, unconditional love of his earthly father has left him secretly doubting the unconditional love of his heavenly father. He has no problem encouraging others in the love of Christ, yet simultaneously he struggles with this very concept in his own life. So I want to pose to you, is there hope for Philip? Can he come to know the love of Christ in a relational way, even as he continually fails to measure up in the eyes of others and himself? Will this broken relationship always be a besetting obstacle that he can't quite come to grips with, so he quickly glosses over it? Will he be able to personalize the assuring counsel he gives in ministry to so many others? Will he come to know the love of God 
that the birth of Christ so loudly proclaims? Will he enjoy a Christ-centered Christmas? Lest we leave out any of our children, I want to present to you this hypothetical yet very real, very experienced story of Jenny. Jenny is a 12-year-old girl that desperately wants to be liked. She has always had friends growing up, but for some reason over the years, this desire to be liked and accepted has grown in unhealthy proportions. She's grown up in the church and has confessed Christ as Lord and Savior at an early age. Yet her relationship with God has grown stale, and she sought to replace God's value in her life with that of her peers. She spends many a night laying in her bed wondering what others think about her and even gauging her worth as a person based on her social media attention. Her life is quickly spiraling downward and her parents just don't know what to do. So I pose to you, is there hope for Jenny? Can she find the peace, the hope, and the joy of which she is so desirous? Will she be able to find an escape from the performance game of trying to fit in and make others like her for being something she really isn't? Or at least someone she knows she should not be? Can she enjoy the closeness of of Christ's embrace that he offers to all of his children? Can she enjoy a Christ-centered life and a Christ-centered Christmas? Those are just two more very common examples of the realities of living in a broken world as broken people. I would dare to say all five of these examples that we've looked at over the two-week span, we can all identify in certain parts with each of those stories. But I want you this morning to think specifically of story number six, which is your story. What is your life story? What are the situations that you have talked the most about this week that have been the most on your mind? How does Christ desire to enter into those very real situations and thoughts? if you would just invite him. You see, we all need Christ to relationally speak into our stories. And like I said two weeks ago, we have the scriptures that do speak into our life stories. And we're going to be looking at one example of this from the book of Colossians, from verses 15 to 23. If you were not with us, Two weeks ago, we have been looking at reasons from this text, verses 15 to 23, why we can have a Christ-centered life, a Christ-centered story, why we can have the assurance that Christ is indeed in our story, and why he desires to continually speak to us in our story and show himself preeminent.
In fact, that's the very key, key truth that we see in this text. Christ is preeminent. Christ is above all things. There is none greater. That's what that word preeminent means. And we've been looking, we started to look at three different realms where we see Christ's preeminence and that then give us confidence to embrace Christ's care and guidance in our stories. So that's what we're setting out to do this morning and to continue from two weeks ago to see that we can have the confidence to embrace Jesus' care and guidance in our life stories. Two weeks ago, just by way of review, we began to look at realm number one where we see Christ's preeminence. And that is, over, uh, that is Christ's preeminence in creation. We looked at Christ in creation Verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. We see that Jesus is above the created order. Why? Because Jesus, God the Son, and God the Father are one. They're equal. Last night, uh, we were reading uh, during our family Advent time. This season, we're going over this Advent family devotional book, Wonders of His Love. At the end of of the Advent week, they give interesting stories, and I thought, wow, this fits right in with Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, and especially as we're looking at Jesus, who is preeminent, because what Satan desires is to lower the preeminence of Jesus in our church, in our life, and to exalt something else. We're going to see in our text that Christ is preeminent of the church. You know, Jesus want, you know what Satan wants to do? He wants to rise our own opinions and preferences and viewpoints as to how things should be done or shouldn't be done and to lower Jesus. He works in all sorts of ways. If you can see, so children, this is, this is story time. We're... we're I don't have a lot of time or I'd have you all come up and you could sit on the floor and, and I could ask Nate to bring up a rocking chair. <laughs> this is called Christmas punch. This is a very clear way that Satan desires to lower the preeminence of Jesus. Sometimes he does it outrightly with doctrine. By trying to corrupt the church and corrupt Christ's people with false doctrine. And of course, during the first, um, the early birth of the church, those first hundred years, the church was ripe for false doctrine. And we see Paul warning about that, and we see in church history, many false doctrines began. Well, let me read this for you. It's called Christmas Punch. Did you know that St. Nick was a real person who lived about 1,700 years ago? In fact, good old St. Nick was a pastor. Maybe you didn't know that. He was a pastor named Nicholas who lived in the city of Myra. 
Now, Myra is near the modern town, probably saying this wrong, but Demur, which is located in the nation of Turkey. So did you know that, that St. Nick, who we think of as Santa Claus, was actually Middle Eastern? Pastor Nicholas loved Jesus, and he loved God's word. And one year, about 325 years after Jesus was born, Nicholas traveled over 400 miles north to the city of Nicaea. Nicholas was going to a pastor's meeting in that city. Now, many of you that know church history can think the Council of Nicaea. Over 300 pastors would meet together and talk about the Bible, and this is why specifically they were gathering. They wanted to discuss and learn more of what the Bible taught specifically about Jesus. Another pastor at the meeting was named Arius. So you hear that term, kids, you think, bad guy, okay? Arius. Now, Arius said that he believed the Bible, but then he said he did not believe that Jesus was God. In fact, Arius believed that Jesus was created by God. In fact, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are known as modern-day Arius, they, or modern-day Arianism. They do not believe that God the Father and God the Son are equal, are one. Now, Arius said he believed the Bible, but then he said he did not believe Jesus was God. Arius said that Jesus was a really important human being, but not God. This was wrong, and Nicholas knew it. During the meeting, as Arius was telling everyone that Jesus was not God, Pastor Nicholas became really upset. Wouldn't you? This was, now he continues, this is in all caps, N-O-T, this is not what the Bible taught. So maybe trying to knock some sense into Arius, Pastor Nicholas made the first Christmas punch. Really? He shouldn't have, but he became so upset that he actually punched Arius. St. Nick punched Arius. Now, this this little reading ends. If you've been bad this year, St. Nick might put coal in your stocking. But if you teach bad things about Jesus, you might want to duck. (laughs) True story, an interesting story. But it shows the importance in how Satan's number one tactic in our life, whether that's through the front door of clear false teaching or through the back door of putting ourselves in an exalted state, whether that's our own opinions, our own feelings, our own thoughts, or even ignoring Jesus in our circumstances, thinking that somehow we can figure it out. Satan's number one tactic is to belittle Jesus and to raise yourself in every single one of our lives. Verse 15, Jesus is above the created order. Verse 16, we saw that Jesus himself is the creator. In him all things were created in heaven and earth, everything Verse 17, we saw Jesus is the sustainer. Not only did he create, the end of verse 17, in him all things hold together. He's the sustainer. 
The second realm that we began to look at last week, we can trust that Jesus is preeminent. We can trust that Jesus is holding our lives together. Why? Because we see what he does in all of creation. But then secondly, the second realm that gives us confidence is Christ and the church. In fact, verse 18, it says, And he is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is our head. Remember last week, we talked about what's the connection here. uh, Paul is talking about Jesus being over creation. Why does he now transition to the church? And if you remember, we talked about the reality that you have old creation. Genesis 1 and 2, God uh, God creates through Christ. And now you have new creation. And the church is an emblem of that which is already in existence but not yet fully come when God creates everything new. So what Paul is doing is saying Jesus is preeminent over the old creation and the new creation. Jesus is our head. So if we are a new creation community, Jesus better be the one in charge, right? Let's not live according to the broken value system of this world. That's what the Corinthians were doing. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I want it this way. I want it that way. Uh, All of these different divisions. I want to be exalted in using my spiritual gift. I want to get the attention. That's the old creation way of living. And it's not right. Jesus is our head. Jesus is king. We also see in verse 18, Christ shows his preeminence in the church. Why is he our head? Because he is the very beginning of the new creation. Verse 18, it says, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why? That in everything he might be preeminent. You see, Jesus brought the new creation. The new creation broke into this world with Jesus' resurrection. When we celebrate Easter, right now we're celebrating Christmas, when we celebrate Easter, we're not simply celebrating the fact that there's an empty tomb. We're celebrating all that that empty tomb brings with it, that the new has come. It's not yet fully come, but the new creation has broken to the old creation. You can almost think of it in terms of Christmas. I don't know about you, but we have a tradition that on Christmas Eve, everybody gets to open one gift. Now, it's not yet Christmas, but everybody gets to open one gift on Christmas Eve in commemoration that Christmas has come, but it's not fully here. It's a taste. And Jesus has brought in the new. He is our beginning. We are now going to go into new stuff. 
I want to give you a third factor regarding Christ and the church and how this brings us confidence. Paul is starting out very broadly talking about all of the world, and as we will see by the end of today, he gets very, very specific. The third reality of Christ being preeminent in the realm of his church is that Jesus is the reconciler of all things. He is the reconciler of all things. It doesn't matter what it is. We're going to look at some foundational truths of how exactly is Jesus preeminent over the church and, 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 and broadly speaking, preeminent over this new creation that he has brought into reality. And it parallels in wonderful ways how Christ is preeminent over the old creation, but in a much greater way in the new. Look at verse 19. Why is he preeminent? How is he preeminent? For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. How is Jesus preeminent? In the new creation, because in the incarnation of Jesus, Jesus becoming a man, all of God's fullness dwelt in the Son. Jesus was 100% man, yet 100% God. There was no lack in Jesus. He was fully God. What does John 1.14 say? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. How do we know God? We know him through his Son, full of the same grace and truth that is full of God the Father. Colossians 2, we're not going to look there, but Colossians 2, very same book we're looking at, Verses 8 to 10, it says, For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In other words, in that humble human body where there was no form or comeliness, Isaiah 53 says that we should desire him. In that lowly body was the 100% presence of God himself. And not only that, but verse 19 says, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This was good and right to God. You see, God did not consider becoming flesh to be laborious, to be tedious. It was in his good pleasure that he took on flesh and revealed himself in his Son. What happened was his kindness and love broke into fallen creation. Why? Because winning our rescue to the praise of his eternal glory was at the forefront of his mind. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in the incarnate Christ. Can I ask you, do you think that the fullness of God is somehow not in your life story where you are at right now. 
Would we be so bold to belittle the preeminence of Christ in our lives to say that Jesus is not 100% there with me? Jesus is preeminent over the new creation, over the church, because Jesus is one with God the Father. The fullness of God dwells in his Son. We cannot belittle the person of Jesus. And not only that, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, but what does verse 20 say? And through him to reconcile to himself all things. So not only is Jesus, not only is he the fullness of God in the flesh, which by the way, today in eternity, he has a glorified body like we will one day have. We see in verse 20, another assurance that nothing is outside of Jesus' reach and reconciliation. Nothing. Jesus had to be God in the flesh, 100% divine, 100% human, to even bring about reconciliation. And according to what verse 20 tells us, Jesus is the very agent by which reconciliation has come. It is through him that he has reconciled to himself all things. Now here's, this is really interesting, okay? If you don't have a a Bible in front of you, it's going to be hard to, to follow along with this. You remember, verses 15 to 17 are talking about the old creation. Jesus is preeminent in the old creation. There's a couple prepositions here. I know this isn't English class, but man, uh, we need to know this. A couple prepositions that show us that even in the old creation, everything has been about Jesus. Verse 16, for by him. That can, that can um, also be translated for in him. All things were created. Doesn't matter if they're visible or invisible. So in Christ... Everything is created. He is involved in everything. Then verse 17. Or excuse me, verse... uh, um, Let's see. uh, The end of verse 16. All things were created. Here's the second key word. Through him. He's the agent by which everything was created. So it's created in him. He is the realm in which everything exists. He is the agent by which everything was created. And then at the end of verse 16, and for him, he is the goal to which creation is headed. Now I want you to look at verses 19 and 20. The same three prepositions are used concerning the new creation. This is meant to be a parallel. Verse 19, for in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That parallels verse 16. For by him or in him, all things were created. So Jesus being one with God in the heavens, all things were created. 
under Christ's authority. Verse 19, as Jesus becomes even a baby, he, seek, he comes to make right what was broken. He again, though he is not from, from a temporal human understanding, though he, he comes in the womb of Mary, he is still in authority because the fullness of God is dwelling in him. He has the authority to make all things new. It doesn't just stop. The parallel doesn't stop there. Verse 20 says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Once again, Jesus is the agent by which reconciliation is made. What is that parallel? It parallels verse 16. All things were created through him. Just as in the old creation, Jesus was the agent of creation, in the new creation, Jesus is the agent of reconciliation. Listen, it's not you or me. We can't be reconciled to God by, by being good enough or by, by somehow serving enough. Or Even if you're a follower of Jesus today, you can't earn your earn favor with God by the things you do or don't do? It's through Jesus. And then verse 20 says, through him to reconcile all things to himself. That word to is the same word in verse 16 for him. All creation and the old creation, the goal of all of creation was to find its culmination in the person of Jesus. That he would be glorified. And we see in verse 20, the culmination of this new creation is that Jesus himself, God in the flesh, has reconciled everything to himself. Listen, folks, if Jesus is not the goal of our lives, then we are going to live aimless lives. The goal to bring Jesus glory, and as we sing on so many Sundays, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. It is about Jesus from start to finish. And somehow along the way, the, the difficulty in the Christian life is that we so easily get offset from the goal of Jesus that we go into all of these things that in the end really don't matter. Listen, I can be preaching every week up front, and if the goal of my life is not to know Jesus better and to deepen my relationship with Jesus yeah, there's going to be some fruit that God allows, but it's going to be of no significance to me. I am Adam Pereira as a follower of Jesus far before I am ever Adam Pereira as a pastor. The goal is Jesus. I preach these things to remind myself of them, and hopefully you will be reminded as well. 
is the goal of your life from start to finish? If all of creation is heading that way, shouldn't we join along if we are part of this new creation? To say it's about Jesus? It's not about these these silly things we get so encumbered with every day of our lives. We get upset. we We get frustrated. We want things our way. Whatever it is. Is your focus on Jesus through those things? Or is it on self? Jesus is the agent of reconciliation. Through him, he has reconciled to himself. And what are those next two words in verse 20? What has he reconciled to himself? All things. I want to point out to you briefly the scope of reconciliation. It is everything. Now we're going to see in verses 21 to 23, lest we believe, oh, okay, well, everyone then is going to be reconciled to God. No. The gospel message goes out and and the Spirit draws to Himself those that are according to His will and, and, and they place their faith in Jesus Uh, But this is saying that there is going to be nothing left unturned. That Christ's reconciling work does not touch. Reconciliation is even, even judging that which is sin. Nothing escapes Jesus' notice. I don't know about you, but that is such a comfort to me in life. Especially when you start to think, God, are you noticing this? God, do you see this happening? God, are you aware of this? You seem to be silent. Nothing misses Jesus' grasp. As a parent, we so often find ourselves so limited. In fact, sometimes we laugh, my brothers and I, when we start to tell stories of when we were kids and uh, our parents like, we didn't know that. You didn't tell us that. That was, that was purposeful. <laughs> Nothing escapes Jesus' notice. In your life, in this world, the wrongs, those acts of service where we are seeking to serve Him faithfully, nothing. In fact, all throughout this text, You see the words, all things, everything, all. Why? Because Jesus is faithful and preeminent in everything. And then we see the means of reconciliation. How does this new creation come about? Because of Jesus' reconciling work, brings all things to himself, and it says in verse 20, lest we want to leave something out, whether on earth or in heaven. Notice again the parallel language to verse 16. Jesus has created all things visible and invisible in heaven and on earth. You see the parallels with the old creation and new creation that everything is under Christ's preeminence. Doesn't matter how high or how low. Doesn't matter how mighty or how weak. All things 
whether on earth or in heaven. How did this come about? Making peace by the blood of his cross. The book of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. If you are here today and you have never turned to Christ and you have seen the error of your way living according to this old creation, living according to the desires of your heart where you are God, and there's never been a time that you have turned in repentance and you have looked to Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, then you do not yet have peace because his blood that he sacrificed has not yet been applied to your heart. Oh, how I pray that today would be that day. Peace has been attained. Making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, lest we jump to verses 21 and 23 too quickly, let me pause and tell you this. This peace is not simply what we so ordinarily think of peace. That it's me. I have peace with God. It, it, it is that, and we're going to see that in a few minutes. But remember, Paul is talking about the new creation. The new replaces the old. How does the, remember last week, the old creation, Genesis 1 and 2, started, God created a world and put people in that world. According to the scriptures, how does the new creation come about? God first creates a new creation people, and then he restores the world. You see, the peace that is being talked about here, it is both an individual peace with God, a removal of sin, but it is also a cosmic reconciliation. That as Romans 8 says, all of creation groans under the burden of sin. God cursed the ground, you remember. And God, through the work of the reconciling work of Jesus, Jesus has even reconciled this fallen world to himself. There will be a cosmic peace one day. That cosmic peace isn't going to come because of whoever's president of the United States or president of any other country. It's going to come because of King Jesus. But it's coming. So this morning, I just want to end our time by looking at this third and final realm that can give us confidence to embrace Jesus' care and guidance and presence in our life story. And this is where the rubber meets the road. We've looked at Christ over creation. We looked at Christ over his church, over the new creation. And now we're going to look, we're really going to narrow it down here, Christ and you. Christ and you. And I would dare to say, out of personal experience, that this is... Seemingly, when you look at the vast scope of all of creation, you look at the vast scope of what Christ is doing as he is bringing in the new creation, but then you just look at us as individuals. Even though this seems to be the smallest realm, this is the hardest one for us to believe, isn't it? 
It's easy to say, yep, Christ, he's got the whole world in his hands. We learned that one as a kid. Yep, Christ has the church in his hands. The gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. But how about Christ has me in his hands? That one's a little trickier to, to truly embrace, isn't it? Because that one really requires an experiential faith. How can we have confidence that Christ is preeminent, whether we realize it or not, over us? Like everything else, we have to go back to the truth of the gospel. We have to look at what verses 21 and 22 show us, the work of Christ on our behalf. Verse 21 says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now I just want to stop right there. And I want to mention that the work of Christ on our behalf, how can we gain comfort and confidence in this? That number one, it is a personal work. It doesn't say, and the person sitting next to you. It doesn't say the, the, the Christian that you admire and respect. It says, and you. Amidst the all things of verse 20 that God has reconciled, we come down to the individuals. You. Are you standing according to the finished work of Jesus on your behalf today? You may say no because the description of verse 20 is still knocking around in my mind. Let's look at that. You were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. You see, this wasn't just a personal work. This was a defining work. Christ has come to create the new. Look at our old status. And this is true whether you came to Christ and turned to Christ like I just talked about at four years old or at 54 years old. These are the labels Scripture gives us of anyone who is outside of a relationship with Christ. Those four words, we'll have them on the overhead. I think. Three words, actually. <laughs> Do we have those? There we go. Those three words are old status if we are in Christ. We were alienated, we were enemies. We were doing evil deeds. Those aren't friendly terms, are they? In fact, many individuals want to shy away from those words because individuals believe, well, how could God be loving if there are individuals who are separated from him, who are his enemies? 
who are doing evil deeds. And I would venture to say, I would say with full confidence, with the same confidence St. Nick slugged Arius, it's these very words that characterize us that show the very love of God, aren't they? That God would reach across the dividing line through his son to draw us to himself. We were indeed once alienated. In fact, Ephesians 4.18 says that we were once darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God. Ephesians 2.12 talks about our alienation from the people of God, from the covenants of promise. We had no hope in the world without God. Maybe that's how you feel today. You have no hope. And maybe that is God's goodness to you to draw you to himself to put your faith and trust in his son today. Text says we were, the scripture says here um, in verse uh, 21, we were hostile in mind. Literally, that reads we were enemies by means of our mind, or enemies in our minds. In other words, we had a heart, a mind, a will that was totally against God. It was our entire disposition because of the fall to be anti-God. And that's true whether you, are, whether you see a baby who's throwing a temper tantrum because he can't get his, mother, or his or her mother's milk fast enough, or whether you see a 45-year-old man having a temper tantrum because he is not being able to fulfill his desires being the God of his own life. Our entire disposition outside of Jesus is that we are enemies in our entire being. And the result of being alienated from a relationship with God, from being an enemy of God, is that we are doing evil deeds. That's what characterizes the life of an unbeliever. It's not that those who are without Christ can never do good things, because that's a part of God's common grace to all mankind, that that there is good in this world. But even in that good, there is an inward hostility towards the one true God. Let's compare that with our new status. If we are in Christ, if we are a part of this new creation, what does verse 22 say? He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In verses 19 and 20, he's talking about cosmic reconciliation, reconciling all things to himself. In verses 23, or 21 and 22, he's talking about individuals being reconciled to God. He has reconciled us, and it was a costly reconciliation, wasn't it? He has reconciled us, how? In his body of flesh, by his death. Ephesians 2, verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
I want to give you a, uh, just a quick reading. I know time is, is, is almost up. This is kind of an imaginary conversation from eternity past between God the Father and God the Son. The person that wrote this imaginary conversation, his name is John Flavel. He was actually a Puritan. He lived um, in the 1600s, 1627 to 1691. And of course, this is from his own mind. And, and you know, you're not going to cross all the T's, dot the I's. We know that it was God the Father out of his love who sent God the Son. God the Son was willing to go. But I think he gets at the heart of Christ in this imaginary conversation in the throne room of heaven. Listen as I read. This is what the Father says. My son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? The Son speaks. O my Father, such is my love to and pity for them, that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all thy bills, that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in, that there may be no after-reckonings with them. At my hand thou shalt require it. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, my Father, upon me be all their debt." The Father. But my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abasements. If I spare them, I will not spare thee. The son. Content, Father. Let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. That is the heart of Christ for you. It was a costly sacrifice. A costly reconciliation. And through that reconciliation, we see that the text says that we, through his sacrifice, will be presented as holy and blameless and above reproach. And the wow statement here is not simply these characteristics, because when I think of myself, I don't think of myself as holy or blameless, or above reproach. Again, the living in the already, not yet. Already we are set apart to God. We are holy. Through Christ's righteousness, we are blameless. No one can charge anything against the account of God's elect. 
we are already above reproach because Jesus is... Jesus bore the reproach of men to give us his righteousness, but at the same time, God is working out these things in our life on a living level. But man, I think the the biggest wow statement here are those last two words, that we positionally are this and one day will be when Jesus returns before him. That is our standing before God. When you compare that to Isaiah 6, where Isaiah is trembling before the presence of God as the the seraphim are crying out, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips. And yet what happens? That coal, that refining coal is placed on his lips and says, you are clean. Folks, this is our standing before God. This is how we know that Christ is in our story because he had to pay his everything to be in that story. And he promises to work out according to, his, to God's sovereign will all things. All things work together for the good of those who love God, who are the called according to his purposes. But I want to end today in verse 23. All of this is true, it says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. You may say, well, Pastor Adam, does this put all the pressure on us? No, it does not but it gives us a very real warning. You see, we have to ask ourselves, if this is true, if Christ really is preeminent in this way in all of these three realms, and where the rubber meets the road in my life, am I clinging to the gospel? This verse makes very clear that we are to persevere in the gospel You see, this is an encouragement to hold on, not simply a scare tactic. We are to continue in, it doesn't say in our own strength, as if somehow, okay, God saved me, now it's just up to me. Continue in your own strength. Continue in trying to earn favor with God. Continue in this, continue in that. No, what does it say? Continue in the what? How did we come to Christ? By what? I hope, let's say it with confidence. By what? Let's say it with confidence. By what? Faith. Hebrews 11, without faith, it is impossible to please God. How many of us are, are living our Christian lives devoid of faith? We are to persevere in the faith that we have in Jesus and Jesus alone. That is faith for those things that we think are insignificant. That is faith for those things that we think are big. How much bigger can we get than the fact that peace with God has been established, reconciliation has taken place? We are to 
Continue in this faith. You know an interesting conversation that the, that the Jewish people had with Jesus when he was living incarnationally on, in this world? Jesus was talking about eternal life and doing the works of the Father. And the people said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Good question, right? You know what Jesus said? This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And I would say if you're a follower of Jesus here, your confidence is grounded in the belief of of the Son whom God has sent and what he has done for you. But are you believing in him whom he has sent to be your Savior every day of your life? To be able to give to him those things that are so distracting, those besetting sins, And to say, Jesus, I give them to you. I want to see victory in my life. I want to be a part of this new creation community. I want to be living my life purposefully for you. I've been bought with a great price. I want to glorify my life in you. Or are you saying, I'm in charge? It is only when our faith is grounded in Christ and Christ alone, verse 23, that we will ever be stable and steadfast. And this is an experiential, relational, stable, and steadfast. As you continually place your faith in Jesus for your everything, that he is preeminent, you see him truly be sufficient, and you become more and more stable and steadfast. In fact, that idea of stable is used in Matthew 7.25 of the man who built his house on the rock, It did not blow over because it was stable, founded on the rock. And it says in verse 23 that we are not to be shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. That idea of shifting as the idea of depicting something moving away from something else. Maybe today you say, man, I have had my relationship with Christ on the back burner. I have let situations and struggles and difficulties and even good things shift me from my hope being solely on Christ. And man, experientially, I have come to realize it because I am living without hope. And as we end, this perseverance in the gospel comes with great certainty. We are assured of the gospel. Verse 23, as we end, it says, this this gospel, this faith that we continue in, man, it's it's not some secret thing. It's not something that, that that we're left unsure about. It says this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the same reconciling, uh, Gospel message of what Jesus did in all of the all things that we've read about. It's the same gospel that, that Paul writes in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, that this gospel has gone into the whole world and is bearing forth fruit and increasing. So while you place your faith in Jesus for every day of your life, 
You are not alone in doing that. Don't let Satan isolate you. The same Jesus that has been tried and true for so many centuries past is tried and true for today. He's the rock that stands the test of time. If today you have never placed your faith in Jesus, today's the day. Would you give him your life?